Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about China-Africa economics and precisely addressing the question that if China sneezes, does Africa catch a cold? Yeah, I think this this issue is very interesting because on the one hand you are seeing so much doom and gloom about the about the, the effect of the Chinese slowdown on African economies, especially because of a fall of price in of a fall in the price of commodities. But on the other hand, it also actually opens up some new opportunities. Well, to answer that question, we are going to go to Paris, France, where Nicholas Norbrook, who's the managing editor of the Africa Report magazine, he precisely asked this question: if or when. China sneezes, does Africa catch a cold? My question to you, Mr. Norbrook, does Africa have a cold? <laughs> yes, well, I guess uh, that is the $64 million question. I, th- I guess the answer is yes, but it depends which Africa you're talking about, and, and not just the old sore about it being uh, 54 countries, but also um, th- these commodity sectors, which is really what everyone's worried about with the price of uh, oil, you know, knocking around the you know 30 to 40 uh, mark at the moment, and the price of copper being cut, you know, cut 50 percent almost for the next few years. Um, th- how much do these sectors really uh, boost African economies? Um, to to some extent, they they are enclaves. You know, you, you take a, a mine. Yes, it might, might employ uh, a few thousand people, but to what extent do, has the wealth of the last? 10 years really transformed African economies. And you'd have to say not not very much. You know, uh, yes, there's been improvements. Uh, there's been some infrastructure spent uh, spend on the, on the back of uh, uh, of this uh, commodity money. But but the, the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, Nigeria is no closer to having a manufacturing sector today than it did 10 years ago. So so I guess um, the, 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 I'd have to ask another question is, you know, is 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 this uh, small cold or, or large cold, depending on where you're sitting? Um, is this actually an opportunity in disguise? And c- could you unpack that, unpack that a little bit? Like what could be some of the opportunities that could be hiding, you know, kind of behind this cold or behind or the, the kind of doom and gloom about the reporting of it? Well, I'm, I mean, let's take the oil sector for an example. So, um, you know, an oil and gas expert told me recently that the, the silver lining in, in the oil price uh, oil price crash is it really allows um, a shake-up of the operating models that a lot of these companies have had, you know, a chance to sort of reform the, the bad habits. In a way, you've just got no choice um, where before there was, you know, these gold-plated service agreements and these very well-padded contracts, now there really has to be uh, a value for money, and um, and the comfort must remain uh, Spartan. I mean, obviously, this is still the oil sector, so it's uh, it's not that Spartan. But but um, you know, for, just for example, the recent uh, uh, Africa Oil Week in Cape Town last year, I heard. Uh, executives from the French oil major Total complaining that they were flying economy class for the first time in their life, and <laughs> and uh, with uh, twist-off wine bottles in coach, you know, not the uh, the proper stuff. Imagine that. Imagine that. You know, for for a French uh, executive, this is unseen uh, unseen stuff. Um, and and I suppose in 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 other sectors as well, this this might. Uh, allow for for you know for leaner operations. I think that is, is a good thing in and of itself. But 
But if you take that a sort of a, a broader view on that, I, I think the, the sort of this sudden drop in incomes is actually also good for political reformers. You've got um, people like uh, John Magafuli in Tanzania, where gold makes up about a third of, of their total exports. Um, and he's arrived at the head of this fairly crusading anti-corruption drive. He's sacked the head of the Ports Authority, shaken down the companies who've been uh, holding out on tax payments. Um, in Nigeria, again, the you know obviously the 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 the, the loss of export earnings from the crude oil lifeblood uh, has been a severe shock. But at the same time, it has also ushered in the era of uh, President Buhari, who is at least trying to sort of re-engineer the national oil company and and cut these connections with parasitic energy front companies who are sort of siphoning off uh, oil in cash. Um, and, and, and you could also argue that South Africa, um, and obviously Kobus, you'd have a, a closer view of this, but, but perhaps, you know, the fall precipitated in the Rand by the replacement of Finance Minister Nene, you know, kind of forced President Zuma's hand and he had to put in this new finance uh, boss who's actually the old finance minister, Pravin Gordhan, and, and, and perhaps Zuma is regretting this as, you know, it does seem to have, you know, in, emboldened uh, the reforming wing of the ANC and and you've had uh, Deputy Finance Minister Sibisi Jonas point a finger at the, the Gupta family and, and their connections um, in South African uh, political and, and business life. So when you look across the continent right now, and you see the economic difficulties that that you that are largely actually most acute in those commodity exporting countries how much do you tie to the readjustments and the realignments that are going on in the chinese economy how much weight do you put on serious governance mismanagement by the host country and how much do you put on to say you know, globalization forces that are beyond the, the scope of any single country? I mean, where does the kind of blame or fault lie in, in pick two or three countries as an example? Because, of course, it's going to be different across the continent. I guess if, for example, uh, let's talk about Nigeria again, as we've been talking about them. If Nigeria had spent the last 10 years of oil bonanza investing Investing, uh, you know, putting money aside in a sovereign wealth fund, spending the rest of its money on overhauling its power service, power sector, and its roads and its rails. If it spent that oil boom money, then it would be infinitely better equipped to deal with the lean years. I, I, I think it's absolutely wrong to to point fingers at China because China is just, you know, uh, a purchaser like any other. Just like it would be wrong to to tell the Iranians, oh, there's absolutely no way you can start selling oil on world markets now. Look at the price. I, I don't think that's a, a very constructive way to, to look at it. Um, and, and certainly those countries like, for example, Ethiopia, who, you know, who have been working hard and, and, and don't really have those kinds of big cash uh, export commodities outside of uh, coffee, you know, they've just been getting on with it. And they're now fantastically well placed because um, not only have they been working hard on restructuring their economy over the last decade, but also they have a much cheaper uh, import bill now for, for petrol. So if, if you were advising an African government who's, who is suffering now from the new normal in China, um, how would you advise them 
to take, you know, to to to, to make um, the most of these opportunities that are coming up. And what, what, how would you advise them? How should they act to be in a better position ten or fifteen years from now? Well, I, I think the 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 most obvious solutions are are, are pretty well known, and and they're all sort of around those early building blocks of of development. So. Um, I think the agriculture sector is one which is absolutely not going to be affected by the new normal. I think consumers in China over the next decade will be eating ever more meat. And I think, um, you know, the, it's not as if China's own agricultural production is going to skyrocket at the same time. So I think agriculture is one obvious area where Africa, which gets so much sun and has so much untapped water resources, um, you know that that's a place where we should really see. Uh, you know, I'd like to see over the next decade the emergence of an African agribusiness giant to to rival something like Brazil Foods. It's perhaps optimistic, but that's what I'd I'd love to see. Um, and then just getting the the building blocks right. You know, working on the infrastructure, getting the power sector and the roads, the power and the roads. I think are the absolute uh, building block. And lastly, um, although you know it was out of fashion. Um, from you know from Reagan Thatcher onwards, but um, you know China shows how it can be done as as does South Korea and Japan, and I think you know some kind of smart industrial policy which uh, avoids the the uh, Gupta family issues of state capture uh, it would be possibly the third third plank. So yeah, agriculture, infrastructure and industrial policy, I think, would be great. Well, let's pick up on the last two points that you brought up, and this is an issue that you raised in your article because you talked about the rising cost of manufacturing in China where wages are going up, environmental protection is going up, so the cost of business overall is going up. Now, that's a big benefit to uh, countries here in Southeast Asia, particularly in Vietnam, where I am, and a lot of that industry is coming here. But there is some optimism that Africa may actually be able to pick up some of the Chinese manufacturing. Uh, Tens of millions of jobs are, in fact, are at stake if that manufacturing moves out of China. But the problem is it's not just about labor, because in that case, Bangladesh would be a powerhouse. Uh, it's infrastructure, it's a legal system, it's, you know, electricity that's reliable so that factories can run predictably. It's ports that are, you know, equipped to handle the, the ships that can bring in the raw materials. How well positioned do you think Africa is, particularly certain countries in the East, to be able to capitalize on this kind of downturn in manufacturing in China? Um, I, well, I think the East is exactly where you should be looking. Like everyone has heard about the, 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 the Ethiopian rise in its textile uh, sector, and, and the government has worked quite hard to, to, to get Asian investors in to advise and also to invest in uh, these free trade zones, economic free zones, where they've been putting factories together. And, and we've seen you know, a real uh, jump in the numbers there. Um, they, I expect them to, to take a serious um uh, rise over the next few years because the Djibouti uh, Addis Ababa rail link is to be completed this year. So you'll have the ability to move cargoes uh, off uh, a ship and right up to Addis to get the inputs in and 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 likewise getting a container out to the Djibouti port will be much much easier. So that that will that will actually turn them into a competitive player. Likewise, you have the Millennium Dam to come on stream this year as well, which will add a significant slice of power. So they'll have good logistics, they'll have cheap power, and they'll have um, you know a very 
uh, low-cost wage uh, force. So I think Ethiopia will, will will do it by itself. And then you know we've you know we've talked in the past about this new um, effort by China to recycle some of its uh, its savings into the uh, one belt one road uh, strategy and, and I think East Africa will will benefit from that and, and we'll see a lot of infrastructure upgrades again in logistics and power and and that may well help spur this uh, this uh, late industrialization. So Kobus, just for some of our listeners who may be joining us and we a couple of weeks ago we actually did a show on One Belt One Road with Shannon Tiezi from The Diplomat and that's the global trading strategy that China has. It's reviving the old ancient Silk Roads that kind of takes trade through the Central Asia into the Persian Gulf, down around the coast of East Africa, through the Indian Ocean, and back up through the South China Sea. So it's this big, giant loop that China's building. And it seems like, Cobus, that there are going to be lots of winners and losers on the continent who may benefit from that. It seems especially like it, it is recentering the the center of the action in Africa somewhat away from South Africa um, and West Africa towards East Africa. Um, you know, that, that East Africa is, is fortuitously placed at the moment, as, you know, kind of as the, the furthest, uh, you know, kind of westward connection of One Belt, One Road, and at the same time it sits next to a, a newly discovered corridor of natural gas that, that reaches down all the way to Mozambique. So it, it seems to kind of to be shifting the, the, the polarity of power in Africa a little bit. Um, Nick, I wonder if you could, if we could just briefly touch on the one of the elephants in the room in in this discussion, which is debt. Um, so much of African debt to China has been structured as resources, uh, resource based loans. Um, now that commodities, the commodity prices are falling, it actually becomes much harder to repay this debt. Um, how do you foresee debt playing, existing and future debt playing out in the China Africa relationship in the future? Well, I think. Um you know, we saw in the last few months uh, a trip by uh, Dos Santos, president of Angola, to Beijing, seeking reassurances on on precisely that the the status of those oil-backed loans. Um, it's 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 hard to say that they will really make much difference. Um, partly that's because the sums, even though they they feel huge, are actually quite small for China. So, for example. Uh, um, in the last three years, uh, one country in Latin America, Venezuela, got almost uh, $50 billion from one of the policy banks. Um, and that's like you know several years of lending to the whole of the continent. So uh, as a result, I, I don't think for China the, the need will be to, to call those in in a hurry. Um, so I, I, you know, hopefully just in terms of the, the lending China has made to Africa, I don't think that will be... Uh, too much of an issue. Yeah, but Copus, it's interesting because we talked to Deborah Braudigam, the kind of well-known professor from Johns Hopkins University about this topic, I think it was sometime last year. And, and if I remember correctly, she pointed out that the Chinese have not renegotiated any of the interest-bearing debt. They've kind of changed the terms on some of the no-interest debt. But they've been, they've been holding a line on that. And that's going to be one of the areas that I would look to to see if the Chinese are sensitive to the difficulties that countries like Zambia and Angola and Ghana are now starting to face as they deal with really the payments on some of this debt that's coming due from four or five years ago. 
Yes, you, we've seen that a lot happening in in Zimbabwe as well. You know, kind of lots of wrangling about about whether Zimbabwe is is eligible for new lending, um, and what's going to happen with with the old lending um, and the old debt. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see how it how it plays out. Nick, can I ask you a quick question about Zambia? Because Zambia, for some reason, gets a lot more media attention than than pretty much any other country outside of South Africa when it comes to the Chinese. And there's been a lot of international coverage of the mines going quiet in Zambia. And in some ways, that's supposed to represent the the Chinese downturn across the continent. Tell us a little bit about what you found in some of your research about Zambia and the the difficulties and maybe the opportunities that the government there is facing. Well, obviously, the 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 copper price has obviously hit the country very hard. There's you know 300 miners left the Vedanta operation. Um, the the country is suffering. The the ratings agencies are, you know, uh, hovering, and they may even have, have have put it on a on a negative watch recently. Um, it's it's hard to say if they they're going to be able to transition towards this more, you know, agriculture driven economy uh, in a hurry. But that is certainly what you know policymakers have made noises about. They, you know, there are a few success stories the the zam beef story is is a pretty impressive one it's expanded to nigeria and ghana and exported elsewhere in the continent um but uh you know uh, you know this is again one of the things that often gets covered in the international by the international media but but they've also suffered from you know chinese agricultural imports and even from chinese companies setting up agribiz companies uh, inside the country um, so it's definitely one to watch, um, it, but I would be interested to learn uh, more about the Zambia uh, free trade zone, which the Chinese set up, which was supposed to service the mining industry, and you know have local companies creating ball bearings and gloves and what have you for the mining industry. Uh, it would be interesting to see to what extent that's going to suffer in the years ahead. Final question here: In, in is when you look ahead. Uh, to the, say the six twelve month outlook, um, you talk about winners and losers. You know, South Africa, Zambia, the Congos may be on the losing side. Ethiopia, Morocco, Rwanda may be on the winning side. When you look on balance across the continent, what do you see? Where the direct economically the direction's going, particularly as it relates to China? Well, I, I think the in the same way that China is trying to rebalance its own economy, so it's you know consuming more of its own production, as it were. Um, the watchword, really, at uh, our recent uh, Africa CEO forum that uh, Group Shanafrik and the Africa Report uh, just put on, in fact, in Abidjan a few days ago, the the, the watchword from the executives there was uh, you know resilience and uh, really getting to grips with intra-regional trade. You know, everyone knows the, the statistics. You know, the the intra-regional trade within Africa uh, is at 11% compared. to to 50% for developing Asia and 65% of all trade in the EU, which is amongst uh, the other EU members. Um, that really is something which absolutely has to change. And and the good news is it is. Like a decade ago, uh, uh, it was just at about 3%. So it's already up at 11% and it's heading in the right direction. Now, an incredible amount needs to happen on the policy level. There are, you know, these grandiose talks of free trade zones that... Uh, 
encompass the whole of the continent, but a lot can be done uh, on the you know micro level by making border posts open uh, until late in the evening and um, you know streamlining and introducing information technology very very actually very basic things that lots of other countries have implemented and seen you know a big rise in trade um, and also working on some of those political conflicts uh, which you know kill trade so Morocco and Algeria two very complementary economies that should be uh, trading with each other a lot more and generating a lot more uh, GDP as a result but you know, there's this sort of cold war between the two countries. Um, so, you know, perhaps Central Africa is a, another good example. Congo and Rwanda and, you know, other uh, neighboring countries in the region could be doing a lot more trade with each other. And a, lo a lot of the executives uh, are now putting policy on, uh, putting pressure rather on their policymakers to try and get some change on this. Kobus, what I enjoy about our discussions with Nick and also reading his article is the complexity that he brings to it, which a lot of the other Western media, again, takes a situation like Zambia and stretches it out as a kind of metaphor for the whole continent. And the, the, the story isn't that simple. And, and I think the downturn may actually have some upsides for Africa as it forces you know, reform. It forces some governance changes. It may force some, uh, you know, some some market changes, particularly in the East. And it's not going to be uniform. And I and I think the message out of today for me was there are going to be distinct winners and distinct losers. Yes, and that for me as well is that within a general kind of gloomy picture of downturn, there's you know kind of any any movement downwards also creates other countercurrents upwards. You know that there are interesting kind of opportunities that that start opening up you know due to certain other other sectors going into crisis um you know all of these all of these potential kind of business opportunities for a country like south africa that 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 nick pointed out in his in his article is super interesting for me the article is when china sneezes does africa catch a cold nick norbrook is the author and also the managing editor of the africa report nick thank you so much for your time today Absolute pleasure. Yeah, time. Listen, the Africa Report is an indispensable report for anybody who's following not only China, Africa, but Africa in general. If people want to stay in, in touch and subscribe and kind of follow what's going on with what you guys are doing at the Africa Report, uh, give us a few of the dots and W's for them to connect you with. Uh, well, www.theafricareport.com is really the, the, the place to be for that. You can sign up for subscriptions and find out where to get it near you. And you also have a presence on Twitter and social media as well. That's right, at The Africa Report, and I myself am on at Nick Norbrook. And Nick Norbrook is a, is a great follow to have. Cobus, uh, where can people find you if they want to stay on top of what you're doing? You can find me on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and there I help to curate a 24-hour constant drip feed of new China African news news items about every four hours there'll be one um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E Curate is exactly the right word so what we do is Kobus and I every day go out onto Google we go out onto Twitter we go out onto Weibo and to all the major kind of social and search engines and we kind of filter through everything a lot like uh, you know to find the, the, the gold 
like Nick's article, uh, When China Sneezes, Does Africa Catch a Cold? And we post it up. So we save you the time and effort for having to do that. Uh, Facebook is a great place to follow us. We have a quarter of a million people there. Lots of great discussions with people from all over the world. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, where I'm tweeting the top China Africa headlines almost every day at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. But if all that is too much, go and get and sign up for our newsletter. It goes out every Monday with only uh, four or five stories that we put out. So it's a little bit easier to manage. And of course, if you want to sign up for this podcast, we would love for you to do that. iTunes.com slash China Africa podcast, iTunes.com slash China Africa podcast. And if you are so inclined, we would be so grateful if you could leave just a ratings or a comment for us. Uh, good, bad or ugly, doesn't matter, but it helps other people find the show. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 